as we've said previously, uh, in coming to chapter 7 we come to the third section of this letter. Uh, The first section, chapters 1 to 4, Paul's dealing with their immaturity and problems that have arisen because of that and he's just going through the gospel, uh, clarifying for them uh, how they're not to bring worldly wisdom into the church. Chapters 5 to 6, he's addressing uh, willful sin that's there in some of their lives. They're doing things that even the pagan society wouldn't dream of doing and uh, as a church they're just accepting it and boasting about it. When we come into chapter 7 we come into the third section and here this is just questions that the church has raised with him. They've written to him asking for advice on a number of issues. It's a good thing when we're Christians to seek advice and help from more mature Christians. There's nothing wrong with that at all. That, that is good. Just be very, very careful who you ask. Um, if you're going to ask a Christian for advice, you want to hear in their answers, well, the Bible says this, let me show you what God's saying. You want to see them showing you what Scripture says. If they're saying things like, well, in my experience, or in my opinion, I, I, to be honest, I would just say, thank you very much, and turn to someone else. You don't want their experience, you don't want their opinion, you want to know, I trust, what God is saying and how to apply scripture to the issues that you've got. Now having said that, we were talking some as Wednesday night after the service, after the meeting, and we were saying there are some Christians of course who would love it if the Bible contained lists and lists of do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that, because that would make it very easy for them. Whatever the issue, they would simply be able to go to the Bible, this is the way they would reason, and just look up and say, oh, that's what I've got to do in that situation. Now, of course, the Bible does tell us black and white, yes or no, to loads of things. There there are very clear areas where God says, you must do this, or you mustn't do that. Uh, Sin is clearly wrong. Uh, There are things as Christians that we should do. Scripture makes that clear, we must do but there is a whole area in between where God doesn't say do this or do that because Christianity isn't about sets of rules. Christianity is first and foremost about a living relationship. It's relational. It's about experiencing God, delighting in God, seeking to glorify God. It's about using our renewed mind as the Spirit works in our thinking to understand how we apply the truth of God to all sorts of situations. And in some of those areas, one Christian will say, well, I feel led to do this, and another Christian will say, I'm led to do that. As long as it's not the areas where God says, that is wrong or that is right, that is fine. We, we are led by God's prompting and we're led by the, our conscience and, and we seek to glorify God. And so inevitably, there are areas where we have questions. And in these coming chapters, seven onwards, the church raises a number of questions that they want Paul's help with knowing how to understand God's word in how they should behave in it. And first and foremost amongst those is marriage. Marriage is probably at an all-time low in Britain today, both in terms of the percentage of people going into marriage. Uh, We've got many, many people today who have no intention at all to get married. That's not in their plans. More so than probably ever before in the history of Britain and also in people's perception of marriage and their expectations of marriage. People seem to be going into marriage with very, very low expectations. Uh, They will go into it drawing up documents as to what will happen if they get divorced. 
You know, that before they've even started, they're making plans for how they're going to end it. Uh, some will go into marriage with the, if not the expectation, at least the thought in their mind that this might end in divorce. That this might well end, like so many marriages they know, where the partners end up walking away from each other. Britain is in desperate need of Christians who can clearly demonstrate what marriage is about, what God gave marriage to, to the world for. Christian marriages that can be seen to stand the tests and the trials that inevitably we experience within marriage and come out of those radiant. Our country needs to see that. Christian marriages where Christ is glorified, where the partners help each other and grow each other and support each other, where children are raised in the, 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 the knowledge and the love of God. The problem is that in deciding whether or not they want to get married outside of the church in Britain today many are not with that deciding whether or not to have a sexual relationship. They don't see the two as linked inseparably together. They see it as perfectly acceptable to not get married but have a sexual relationship. For the Christian that is not an option of course. A sexual relationship and marriage are synonymous Within marriage we enjoy a right sexual relationship. Outside of marriage we have no sexual experience. That is how it is for the Christian because that is how God has ordained it. Therefore, for a Christian, the issue of whether or not to get married is actually a far greater question than for the non-Christian. And that is the issue here. I would suggest to you that we can probably guess what lies behind it very much for the Church of Corinth. They are surrounded by sexual immorality. It's rife in Corinth. It's, it's one of the most sexual, sexually immature areas of the then known world. And that's, as we've already seen, is creeping in the church and it's being applauded by some in the church. So it would seem that another section of the church is rightly saying this is totally wrong. But their response to it seems to be we should live a life of celibacy. We, we should remain single, we shouldn't get married or if you are married then you shouldn't have sex with each other because look what happens when people have sex. The, the whole city is in a mess because of it. So if you're married you better start refraining from having any sort of sexual relationship or maybe even get divorced and separated from your partner so that you're not tempted to have any sex. It may be as well that there's some very early form of Gnosticism creeping in with the idea that all physical contact is inherently evil. And, and, and so there are this advocating within the church that really the only acceptable lifestyle for a Christian is to avoid sex altogether. Now I want us to see first of all that Paul makes it clear that there are two gifts, not one, in these first nine verses. Verse 2, each man should have his own wife. Marriage is a creation ordinance. God gave it to humanity. That is God's purpose and plan. Having made Adam, there was no one found amongst all the created beings that was a suitable helpmate for him, one who could match him and one who could balance him, one who could help him. So God created Eve as, as a partner to Adam. And, and from there on, marriage is God's purpose for humanity. That is the norm. Verse 2, each man should have his own wife. But, verse 1, it is good for a man not to marry. What's Paul saying here? 
sounds like he sort of wants to have his cake and eat it, doesn't it? Verse 2, he's saying that you should have your own wife. Verse 1, he's saying it's good if you don't get married. So which is right? Is it good not to be married or is it good to marry? The answer is they're both right. There are two gifts here, not one. Can I suggest to you that I guess every Christian, certainly most Christians, would immediately see marriage as a God-given gift. Can I suggest there are some who don't see singleness as a God-given gift? According to God's word here, it is. Verse 7, But each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. These are God-given gifts. Now before we go any further, can I encourage, as I have before, to each one of us to try and see this and accept it. Perhaps you haven't, perhaps you've already decided in your mind and hearts that your children are going to give you grandchildren. You know, and they're not yet married. And you've already not only got them married, but you've already got them producing grandchildren for you. What about the possibility that maybe the gift that God has given them is singleness, not marriage? Are you youngsters growing up and, I don't know, maybe you're only 14, 15, 16 and you've already got all the visions in your mind of you walking down the aisle and the partner you're going to have and how it's going to be. Have you stopped to consider the possibility that maybe God doesn't want you to get married? That maybe the gift he's chosen for you is the gift of singleness? Because this isn't about our choices. This isn't about our wishes and desires or goals. This is about which gift God has decided to give us. Paul it's charisma it's the same when he talks about the spiritual gifts it's what God has chosen in his infinite wisdom to bless you with and I think so many of us see marriage as a blessing we don't perhaps see singleness as a blessing yes verse 2 the norm is marriage but some are given a different gift and it's not an easy gift to enjoy in our culture and society today is it the gift of singleness And with that I mean not having a sexual relationship. That's not an easy gift to carry. Especially when if you come into the church who are supposed to be your brothers and sisters in Christ and are supposed to understand God's word and are supposed to see it as a spiritual gift, you actually find that they are sort of looking down on you as though you're to be pitied. As though somehow they're better off and higher off than you are because they're married. And that shouldn't be because it's a God-given gift. If God has given someone you know who's a Christian the gift of singleness, you should be encouraging them and helping them and blessing them for the gift that God has given them. Not in your mind sort of dismissing them somehow as being a second class person because they're single. In fact, the way Paul writes it here, at least the way I read it, is that what we should actually start off is to consider first the possibility that Paul, in fact it's the only way it makes sense, is to first of all consider the possibility that God has called you to a life of singleness and pursue that, make that your focus, but then if you find that your passions are too strong and your drive to have a sexual relationship with someone is so strong that it's going to cause you to sin, then think about marriage. Now that might seem a very non-romantic way of looking at it Paul's not primarily concerned here with romanticism he's concerned here with honouring God 
And what he's saying is that if you're going to consider the possibility that the gift God's given you is singleness, you're going to have to consider that before you get married. It's too late afterwards. So he's saying, mate, your first thought, has God called me to singleness? Let me try and live that life. And if you find you can't live that life without falling into sin, then of course, verse 9, turn to marriage. Now, what would possibly be the advantages of being single? I mean, we can think of all the advantages of being married, can't we? God gave Eve to Adam as a helper, that that together they could enjoy life in a richer, deeper sense. That that he would have someone who intellectually and emotionally and and physically engages with him, someone who he can share his life with, someone who he can talk to, someone who he can have this wonderful, intimate relationship with in a sexual relationship now what can you put against that well look first of all at verse 24 of chapter 7 here's the first thing each man is responsible to God to remain in the situation God called him to here's the first thing if God has called you to singleness then that's where God wants you to be and if you as a Christian say I want to be where God calls me to be then if it's singleness, that's where you're going to be happy in Christ, isn't it? You, if, if God has called you to singleness and that's what he's created you for and that's what he's gifted you for and that's where he wants you to enjoy him and serve him, you're not going to live such a fulfilled life if you reject that and go after marriage. Because that is what God in his infinite wisdom and grace has chosen for you. Verse 26 is a second reason because of the present crisis I think that it is good for you to remain as you are Paul doesn't develop what that present crisis is and different commentators have different ideas I, I think it is as simple as this the church was coming under increasing persecution and Paul is simply saying look church as you're coming under increasing persecution it's far better, far easier for you if you're single than if you're married isn't that obviously right? brothers just shared about this pastor and his wife I don't know if they've got children Alec they haven't got children but he's got a wife and if you're thinking about the possibility of being imprisoned that's a whole lot harder isn't it if you've got a wife and a whole lot harder still if you've got children if you're facing as Christians our brothers and sisters in Christ that they are facing in some countries that if I stand up and identify with Christ I could be killed that's a whole lot harder to face if you've got a wife and children dependent on you, isn't it? If that means that those children are going to be fatherless, that your wife is, is going to be without a source of income, as in many societies she would be, and she's going to be ostracised from society because you have stood up and identified with Jesus Christ, the pressure that you're under to keep quiet. And Paul says, in that situation, it's far, far easier if you're single. And if we're not going through that at the moment, I tell you it's increasing, as those of you especially who are involved in street preaching and that, know. The, 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 the pressure that's growing against us to remain silent and not to speak out for Christ is getting ever greater. And, and so the, the cost of doing that, in a very real sense, becomes far greater if you've got dependent family. There's another reason, verse 29 to 31. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. 
From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. What's he mean, the time's short? I suggest to you there's two senses in which we can understand it. I think the way he certainly means it there is the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again and that's imminent. Amen? Look at verse uh, 31. For this world in its present form is passing away. You can say, well, he was out by 2,000 years in his desire to see Jesus come again. We're 2,000 years nearer it than he was. Let's put it that way. Jesus is coming again and the time is short. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, said Jesus. That, that's to be our focus, that's to be our heart. And, and his argument here is very simple. Given that there's not long before Christ comes again, if you get married and you have children, so much of your time gets taken up with things concerned with them, doesn't it? Now it must do, it's right that it does, that's his point. You have to divide your time then between what you can do for the Lord and what you must do for your wife and children or the woman for a husband and children. That, that, that is a right balance, biblically, that you've got to maintain. But Paul says, but if you weren't married, you could give yourself 100% of your time to serving Christ. So I guess that begs the question, how much do we want to serve Christ? Because Paul's saying, stop and think about that for a minute. If you really want to serve Christ, you're going to have more time to do it single than you are married. And the time's short. And if Jesus Christ doesn't return in your lifetime, and I would say there's a very, very good chance that he will, but if he doesn't, the time's still short because you've only got the rest of your lifetime. And I tell you, when you get to my age, that starts to disappear very, very quick. Frighteningly fast. And you suddenly realise you're well into the second half of it, and, and what have I done for the Lord? And you look back and you start counting up how much time you spent doing things that you don't really want to do but you've got to do because that's part of living, particularly if you're married and have children, and the amount of time you've actually been able to give to what you want to do, which is serving God. And there's a last reason, verses 32 to 35. Well, it's a continuation of that one. Not only is the time short, but your whole priorities get split when you're married. There's claims on you. There's your children saying, Dad, will you do this with us? There's, you come home from work if you're a man. I, I'm not being sexy, so I'll just put the men first because I started with a man. You come home from work and, you know, there's plumbing he's doing in the house or, or you need to do something... Or, or the lady if she's got a job she comes home and the children are screaming for their food or you've got to pick them up from school or the husband's sitting there bemoaning the fact that he doesn't know how to iron his shirt or something or whatever it is and your priorities you're constantly being pulled in more than one direction whereas if you're not married you haven't got that problem you simply say every moment that I want to spend serving the Lord and working for the Lord I can do and it doesn't affect anybody else my time's my own to serve the Lord. And Paul says that's a wonderful position to be in. A wonderful position to be in if you love the Lord. If you have been given the gift of marriage, and that's the norm, that's what most people have been given, he says three things about it there, doesn't he? The first thing there in verse 2, each man should have his own wife. The Bible's absolutely clear, marriage is between one man and one woman. That is the only 
relationship like that that God understands. It's the only one that's right. It's the only one that can possibly honour him. One man and one woman committing themselves together. But did you see that in verses 3 and 4? And friends, I think this is so important for 21st century Christians. When you get married, it's not just that your money gets shared. It's not just that your possessions get shared. It's that your lives get shared. And that includes your bodies. And that means you need to have a healthy sexual relationship within marriage. It, It amazes me how so often it seems to be in our generation that and mainly because of the stress that people are under and the time constraints that people are under, they end up incredibly tired and I guess the first thing that suffers because of that is the sexual relationship that the husband and wife enjoy. And it might be mutual that they're both saying, well look, we're both tired and, you know, and, and then they wonder why problems start arising in the marriage. I would suggest to you it's almost inevitable that problems are going to start arising in the marriage. Because this should be at the very heart of the marriage. This is the greatest, the most wonderful, the most beautiful aspect of being married that God has given us. This, that we share in making love to each other or with each other. And, and we jeopardise that at the risk of our marriage. Can I encourage us each one to see that who are married? I do understand that some of you are living incredibly stressed lives. You're going out very early in the morning, you're working incredibly hard all day, husband and wife in cases. You're coming home, you're probably bringing home work with you. You're attending church meetings, you've got children to look after and all the rest of it. At the end of the day, you just want to fall into bed and fall asleep. That isn't healthy. It really, really isn't healthy. How does Paul... Put it here, look at verses 3 and 4. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone but also to her husband in the same way the husband's body does not belong to him alone but also to his wife. We've got to see that. Your partner has got an absolute claim on your physical body to satisfy her sexual needs and you have got a claim on her body to satisfy your sexual needs within marriage in a God-honouring way. In fact, the only circumstance that Paul allows to deviate from that, what does he say? Is where the two of you jointly decide, it's, it's the desire of both of you, to break from that for a period to focus on prayer. And he makes the point then of saying, even then, make it only a short period. Because what will happen otherwise? Satan will get in and start attacking. He'll start putting wrong sexual thoughts in your mind. He'll start making other women or men, whichever partner I'm talking about, look attractive to you. You'll start, if you're not satisfying yourself there, you'll start looking to see where you can satisfy. And as well as that, every other aspect of your marriage will start to devalue because you haven't got that part right. My friends, can I plead with you to work at that side of marriage? I know we're British. I know we don't talk about these things. And I know as Christians we very often don't feel we can talk about these things. But if you can't talk about them with your partner, there's something wrong, terribly wrong. And if you can't ensure that that's a healthy, dynamic, vibrant part of your marriage, your marriage is going to suffer 
and here they were contemplating we won't have sex anymore in our marriage because maybe that will honour God more and Paul says no you got it totally wrong that's the whole purpose and place that God's given you the sexual relationship for at the very heart of marriage don't abandon it and that marriage is until death parts you look at verses 10 to 16 You know, Britain has for years held the highest divorce rate in Europe. I read in an article in the paper, it's a reputable newspaper, I don't know if it's factually exact, but it said that Britain has now got the highest divorce rate in the world. People draw up now, don't they, these prenuptial arrangements or whatever they call them, that, you know, if this marriage goes wrong and if we end up in divorce, we will divide our property this way and that way to avoid the the legal wrangling and and the cost to solicitors and everything else when it goes wrong. You can now get cards I've seen in shops. It makes me sick that you can go in there and you can see congratulations on your marriage, congratulations on your divorce cards in shops in Britain. There is now shops in Britain where you can set up a list of presents you want for your divorce so that your friends can go to the shop and, and choose for you from your list of presents that you want for your divorce. I mean, that's what Britain has come to. That is fact. And Paul is writing here to say, if you're married, you're married for life. If you're a Christian, divorce should never enter into your... If both of you are Christians, divorce should never, ever enter into your thinking. Shouldn't enter into it. When you go into marriage, youngsters, if you're a Christian, you choose a Christian partner and you commit yourselves to each other before the Lord that before you ever get married you're going to be married until the day one of you drops dead no option that is how God wants it to be and if you're Christians that's what we do in fact the only concession that Christ allowed for divorce which is marital unfaithfulness in Matthew 19.9 the only condition if you're both Christians you should be able to resolve without divorce shouldn't you? If you're truly Christians, it should never have happened in the first place, but if you are both truly Christians and it's happened, then there should be such repentance by the one who's done it and there should be such a willingness to forgive by the one to whom it's been done that you should be able to rescue that marriage, shouldn't you? If you're both Christians. If that repentance is real and genuine and if you're a Christian it's got to be and if the other partner is got that willingness to forgive even as God has forgiven us then we should be able to make that marriage work that's verse 10 to 11 where he's speaking to two people who are both Christians but what if neither person's a Christian and then one becomes a Christian as obviously I would think from the text that's happened here in Corinth the gospel's been preached one person has been saved and not the other person and they say well what about me where does that leave me should I divorce my non-Christian partner now should I sort of be devoted to Christ and, and separate myself from that no 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 says Paul not at all what does he say there if 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 your partner is willing to live with you then live with them show them Christ be, be, be Christ representative there in the home you know, you know dynamically and radiantly show them what it means to be a Christian right there in, in their very 
most intimate relationship with them. And he says, as you do that, you sanctify that home. You bring an aroma of Christ there into that home. That there's something of, of Jesus there. You know, you could count that as a Christian home in that sense that there is someone there who loves and is glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, and that has a sanctifying effect on the children. He doesn't mean that they are saved through your faith or that the husband can be saved through your faith. That would be to contradict everything Scripture teaches and what Paul clearly teaches elsewhere. He doesn't mean that. But he means that the faith that you've got in God will have some sort of sanctifying effect upon them. You'll be able to raise your children in a knowledge of the Lord. You'll be able to lead them to Christ. You'll be able to show them what it means to be a Christian. You'll be able to show your husband or your wife, if you're the man, what being a Christian is all about. You'll be able to make Christ attractive to them, as Paul tells the slaves, or tells Titus to teach the slaves. And who knows, he says, but that they might be saved through that. Isn't that an amazing thought? Look, time, time, time's gone. Isn't that an amazing thought for us to finish on? Are we praying for those we know who are Christians whose partners aren't Christians? They need our prayers. They're evangelising in the hardest place. I don't mean necessarily that their partner's hard to Christ at all. I mean the home is the hardest place to live out your faith, isn't it? It's where you're seen Warts and all. It's where every mistake you make is seen and noted. And they're trying to radiate Christ there. At least I trust they are. Will you pray for them? Will you pray that they're really able to show off Jesus Christ in the home to their children and to their partners? Will you pray for the youngsters who come from homes where their parents aren't Christians and they're there in the home trying to radiate Christ to them? And will you pray for those who are married to Christians that they might be so one in Christ that they can really enjoy their relationship with each other in Christ and Satan will have no foothold in that relationship and no foothold in that home. And will you pray for those who are single? Don't look down on them. Don't pity them. Pray for them. They're living in a culture that places such a high value on having relationships. And if God has given them the gift, whether it's just for this period of their life or whether it's for the whole of their life, of living in singleness, then pray that they'll be able to do it well for the glory of God. That they'll be richly blessed for it. Because they're making a big sacrifice that many of us take for granted. But they can serve the Lord in ways that we can't. And they can be used of God in ways that we can't. My friend, we need to hold each other up before the Lord, don't we? And our marriages especially in this culture and generation in which we live. We're going to sing as we come to the end of this part of the service. We're then going to gather briefly around this table to remember the Lord's death. And if you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Lord and Saviour, you're very, very welcome to sharing that with us.